listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winter Haven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening. Today we're going to start a new series. And it's a uniquely different series. I'm, I'm the most comfortable when we go through a book of the Bible. And we're going to do that. The very next series that we do is actually going to be in the book of James. It's, a, it's, a, it's the first book that I ever preached at when I came, or preached through when I came here, uh, when it was Haven in 2008. That was the first book that I preached through. And so I'm figuring that after a decade, it may be okay to go back and preach it again. So we're going to do that. But it's going to have a fun and interesting twist this year because some of you remember that I've started volunteering in kids' ministry in the month of February. You say, why would you do that? Because kids' ministry is so important. And the kids are so instrumental to who we are. And I want to show y'all how important they are. So I'm trying to lead by example and volunteering for a month in kids ministry. And two, it's a whole lot of fun. I like to do it. So in February, I'm going to be back there. And so we'll be preaching beginning in January, the book of James. And then in the month of February and beyond, I'm going to have some help preaching through the book of James from some of the other preachers and teachers that we have been blessed to have here partnering with us at Oasis Church. So it's going to be a lot of fun. It'll be a little bit different. It will be brand new content, but it'll be the same book. So I would imagine we're going to come to the same conclusions that we did 10 years ago, but that's on the horizon. This series, however, is not going to be a book study. In fact, it's not really going to be so much a topical study. Over the next, this is the first, and over the next eight weeks to follow with Christmas and New Year's, splitting that a little bit, we're going to go through our eight essentials of doctrinal beliefs that, that, are, that are essential to who we are as a church. We have a document called our Statement of, of Faith and Practice, and that is a doctrinal statement that tells you almost everything we could think about, about what we believe in certain categories. It's a fairly long document. If you're a covenant partner, you were asked to read that document. And in fact, you would have, you were supposed to read it and then let us know if there was anything in that doctrinal statement that you disagree with so that we could talk about that because partnership need, we need to be on the same page as much as possible. That's a long document. Some of you have waded through that and you're like, wow, that was a lot more than I wanted to know. But it's important that we express what we believe because what we believe is important. I'm going to say that again. What we believe is important. In fact, what we believe determines our eternal destiny. You say, well, wait a minute, I thought Jesus is what determines our eternal destiny. You're exactly right. Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection is the substance of the salvation that we receive that brings about redemption. It brings about new life. It brings us out of darkness into light. You're absolutely right. Our eternal destiny is forever affected by the work of Christ, but we get the privilege of being saved by what we believe. It is important what we believe. In fact, what we believe is essential. But within our doctrinal statement, there are things that are, some would call, non-essentials. We'll talk about those in a minute. Some of those things, some of you are covenant partners and you've read our doctrinal statement and you read through it and you went, you know what, Pastor Kevin, you said to write down if we kind of disagree with something. I'm just, I need to let you know that I kind of was raised in a church that saw this particular thing a little different. And just to be right honest with you, I kind of see things a little different. And you know what? The majority of those things in that doctrinal statement are, are issues that aren't unimportant. They're just non-essential, meaning it's okay to disagree. It's kind of like when folks say, you know what, Kevin, I know that you're a fan of the University of Georgia. Yes, I am. And they go, well, I'm a fan of Florida State or I'm a fan of Miami. And I go, well, it's okay. That's, that's non, you know, that's non-essential. It's not important to our friendship. But when someone says, but I'm a fan of Florida, I go, well, now things might have gotten over. 
10 years, right? Y'all still give me leeway and I love you for it. Okay, back to the point. There are some things that we can disagree on and go, you know what? It's okay because Christians throughout the centuries have believed what, what, what you stand on and Christians throughout the centuries have believed where we stand. You know what? It's okay to be brothers. We can hug it out. In fact, we can be partners. Then there are things that are, are non-essential but super important, meaning that we don't, we're, we're not divided over it. Like We don't have to say, you go your way, I'll go my way. But there are certain things that while they're non-essential, they're important, and we go... Mm, that that you don't believe that that causes me some concern and that might while it not might not prevent us from being partners and you being in here and serving I might not and and the elders and the and the and the board we we might not think that it's a best idea for you to be teaching because you kind of disagree on something that's a little bit more important, but not enough to keep us from hugging and embracing as brothers and locking arms as partners. But then there are some things in our doctrinal statement. These are hills on which we would say are worthy to die on. These hills are the core of the Christian faith And these are the things that we would call essential. And in fact, if you want to partner with Oasis Church in a, in a, 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 an absolute way where you're in covenant with us and you're recognized as a covenant partner, which we would hope that everyone who resonates with, with this body would want to be in partnership with us. But there are some things that we would call essential beliefs that if you disagree with those and you say, Kevin, you know what? I see that the church feels this way, but I I see these things different. These essentials would cause us to go, well, as bad as I hate to tell you this, it's not going to be possible for us to partner because if you're against this particular essential, then you, as far as we understand, are not embracing the authentic or orthodox Christian belief. And we've boiled those things down to eight essentials. They're, they're those things over which we should be willing to die. And they're those things that we should see as deal breakers when it comes to partnering for the ministry of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? So we want to go through these eight essentials. But to do that... I'm going to need to give you a little bit of an introduction into what we call theology and what we call theology. And in order to get into that introduction, I want to tell you why it's important that we do this, that we're going to do this week and eight more to follow. And and any other time that we specifically want to hone in on something of a theological nature, It's important because of what God's word says. And these these essentials are worthy to be taught. Those stakes are worthy to be driven. And they're worthy to be seen clearly because departure from them is a departure from the faith that Jude tells us about. Now, you're looking on your smartphone and your iPad, and you're saying, where's the U version? Well, we're not going to have U version for this series. In fact, we're going to have a handout. If you did not get a handout this morning and you would like to have one, raise your hand. Marcus needs one. I tell you what, Gavin, run out front and get the handouts, and Al's going to help you. Run out there, scurry along. There's there's, uh, Miss... Amanda's got some hand. Just hold your hand up. Keep it up. Hold your hand up. They'll eventually get to you. You're not, you don't look really silly right now. Just a little bit silly. Not essentially, just a little bit silly. Just keep your hand up. They'll come back. <laughs> and I won't even look and laugh at you. Just keep your hand up. Jude, chapter number. Aha. There's only one chapter in Jude. Jude, verse number three. He says, Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. 
For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were destined for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Jude, hey Jude, who are you? Well, most believe that Jude, by his introduction, he says in in the verses prior that he is a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother to James. Why? What does that have to do? Well, Jude was trying, I believe, to make it clear who he was under the authority of. Uh, Jesus Christ is his master because he's a servant. But I think he's saying, and I'm the brother of James. Well, James was a very common name in the, in that particular time in the New Testament. So what's significant about James? Doesn't give a last name. Well, what's significant is most Bible students believe that this James he's referring to is the leader of the Jerusalem church. The one who was the chief elder, if you will, of the Jerusalem church, the, the believers that met there. He was the leader. Well, what does that have to do? Well, most Bible students believe that this James who is the author of the book of James that we're going to start studying in January, they believe him to be the brother of Jesus, the half-brother, if you will, the son of Mary and Joseph, because in Matthew and Mark, the brothers of Jesus are identified in a listing first to James and then the last one in that listing being a Jude or a Judas. Most Bible students think that that this James, the leader of the of the uh, of the Jerusalem church, to be the brother, a half brother of Jesus, and Jude to be the brother of James, which would also make Jude the half brother of Jesus. And so this Jude is writing, and he tells us right here in verse three what he wanted to do. What he wanted to do was to was to preach to them and encourage them about this common salvation that we have. Can I tell you what I want to do? What I want to do is teach through a book of the Bible every time I get a chance to preach because I want to do it. It's most comfortable to me. It makes the most sense in my study and preparation. It's what I want to do. And in fact, I want to just preach the books that are fun to preach. Like there are some books that... That honestly, they're kind of on the, they're like on the bottom of the last page of the list. And, and some of y'all that have been asking me, when are you going to preach through Revelation, Pastor Kevin? I go, well, I'm, I'm figuring that'll probably be the last book that I preach before y'all <laughs> lay me down at the end of my ministry because that's just not fun to me. Cause if you preach Revelation, you got to go all kind of, and I just don't want to do it, but eventually I will. I don't want to. I want to preach the fun books. But what do you need? You need the ammunition. You need the equipping. This fellow right here, Jude, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was driven by God to say, you all had better contend for the faith that was passed down once for all to you. Well, you've got a job to do. And so it's necessary for me to equip you with the tools you need to do what you've been told to do by Jude from God himself. What did he say? He says, you need to contend for the faith. Well, what is this word contend? I looked it up. It's a Greek word. And because of the way it sounds, I'm going to tell you what the Greek word is. The Greek word is agonizomai agonizomai now what does that word sound like agony agonize and in fact it is a word that that where we get our agonize from what's cool about this is that this word is a girls hypox legomenon (laughs) your daddy told me y'all know what that is anyway he told me what that they smarter than all the rest of it i'll just go ahead and tell you that What's a hypox legomenon? It's a word that's only used once in the New Testament. 
So where do we learn what this word means? We got to look to the Greek literature outside of the New Testament because it's only used here. Well, how in the world am I supposed to know what Aaron and I, we, we, we struggled last night with the boys' help trying to figure out what the word turnt means. Turnt. We're still not real sure we know what turnt means, but we think we probably might not ought to refer to it in context of ourselves. But that's a word that you got to look outside of the body to figure out what turnt means, right? I don't even know that that's really a word, but it's in the dictionary. So to look outside, you got to learn that agonizomai means, I got it written down, it means to contend earnestly for. It's, it's literally meaning to strenuously struggle to overcome an opponent. To strenuously struggle to overcome an opponent. How many of you watch the Ultimate Fighting Championship and you go, that's, see, anyway. I'm real sure if that's a trick question or not. What do they do in the UFC? They strenuously struggle to overcome an opponent. You got to go because it's, it's on when you get in that octagon and, and you're either going to be beat to a pulp or you're going to stand your ground. So this idea of agonizomai means to strenuously go after. In fact, it's used sometimes in the Greek literature outside of the New Testament to be like a, a position on top of a hill that you stand on knowing that there are those on the ground below you who want your spot and are coming to dethrone you from the top of the hill so that they might stand on that hill. And those of you who have spent any time on the playground know that's called king of the hill. I'm on top of the hill, but the folks on the bottom are going only for a minute because I'm coming to get you. Agonizomize this idea that, okay, this hill is worth holding and I'm going to do whatever it takes to stay here because this hill is important enough to fight anyone who would try to knock me off of this hill. What is this hill? It's the essentials of the faith that Jude says, contend for the faith. What is the faith? The faith is the gospel meta-narrative that we've been handed by Jesus himself. You say, what is that? What we've been handed by Jesus is not the Roman's road to salvation, although that's a great tool to use to show people how salvation has been made available to them and can be received by them. But the faith encapsulates everything that every prophet, every priest, every leader, everything that was compiled, everything that Jesus taught, all that the apostles wrote down. It's the gospel meta-narrative that says, you guys messed it up, we learn in Genesis, but God was determined to bring about his redemptive plan. So when Jesus come out of the grave, he was basically standing on that hillside going, all right, did y'all all pay attention? If you're paying attention, I'm going back up to be with the Father and I'm going to come back and I'm going to receive you. But while you wait, I want you to take everything you've seen, everything you've learned in the synagogues, and I want you to compile it all together and I want you to take it to all the world and teach them the, meta, the big meta-narrative of the gospel, the faith. In the first century, however, Jesus didn't come to them with a big, thick, three-ring binder manual that goes, and you'll find everything you need right here. The tabs will tell you about what the church and, oh, how are men and women supposed to relate? You know, there were all kinds of things that they didn't know. Well, what are we going to do about this? Jesus had already told them, I'm going to send you another comforter. Someone to be with you in my absence who in effect will be with you in a greater sense 
than I am, limited by space and location, this comforter that I'm going to send you is going to be in you. And not just you who are right here, but to everyone who believes so that the presence and purpose, uh, uh, guidance of God is going to be with everybody that is a follower that has had right belief. And we know that new comforter to be the person of the Holy Spirit. Thank you. But it's okay because we're going to get to that in about two weeks. Jesus says, go and teach. And Jude says, you got to contend for that faith. You got to contend for everything because there are those who have snuck in, verse number four says. They've snuck in and we didn't even notice it. We didn't even notice that they, they had come in and that they were trying to knock us off the hill. They slithered in, if you would. They infiltrated the ranks for the purpose of perverting the faith. Certain people, verse 4, crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Let's be honest with you. It's really difficult to know what Jude is talking about here. When he says they were destined long ago, everybody that I read behind said that, that they feel like that what he's saying is, is that they are just a part of a long line of opposers of the will and way of God that began all the way back in the garden when the first slitherer came into the garden and messed it up for all the rest of us. These folks that have crept in, that are doing their best to try to pervert the the faith they were from longer they're just a part of a long line of folks that have been opposed to the purpose and plan of God and you know what they're destined for this condemnation that God is going to bring them because of their rejection that's not for us to do that's God's business their condemnation and how they're to be treated and what That's not our business. Our business is to strenuously struggle in defense of the faith. They pervert it, but we are to preserve it. That's going to be our purpose over the next eight weeks to teach you those things that represent the hill on top of which Oasis Church and its leaders have stuck their stake, but not for the first time. In fact, we are just a part of a long line of men and women who've staked their, their standard in the ground, some of them not even knowing about the one who was to come and give his life, some of them having no knowledge at all about how God was going to bring this, but they're driving their stake and driving their stake all the way through redemptive history. And now we're just those in 2018 that are continuing to drive that standard and go, we're going to stand and you're going to have to kill us to knock us down. You say, would they do that? Google Fox's Book of Martyrs and you will discover just one work that records the life and death of those who have said, nope, Jesus is God and you're just going to have to tie me to that stake because I ain't recounting. Essentials. When we talk about essentials, We're talking about theology. So let me take you through an introduction to theology. If you have your hand out, we'll go through this and we'll be done. Theology, what is it? Theology is the study of God. It's just simply the study of God. It is when we look to the the messages that we hear about God and we try to decipher when we look to documents that have said things about God we look to to teachings or 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 arenas that are that are dealing with the subject of God theology is when we begin to try to understand who God is based on a body of information that has been given it's actually it's it's not so much a subject as it is an exercise 
When, when, when seminary professors are talking about theology, while that might be a course you are taking, Theology 101, theology is actually an exercise. They would say that we do theology. When we are engaged in talking about our Savior, when we're engaged in talking about his word, how it applies to us, how it should be understood by all of humanity, we are in fact doing theology. Now, sometimes when we do theology, we're doing good theology. Sometimes we're doing bad theology. It just depends on the conclusions that we come to. So when we talk about conclusions, what are those? The first one in your handout, doctrine. You've heard that word before. Doctrine is theological conclusions reached as a result of the study of God. Doctrine is neither a good nor bad word. It's not, it's just a neutral word. Doctrine is the conclusion that you come to when you're studying God and you come to the conclusion that this and, and you begin to believe this, that is a doctrine. That may be a good doctrine. It may be a bad doctrine. But the doctrine is a conclusion. You'll think about, well, where is that? Well, Paul told Timothy, when he's talking about inspiration of Scripture, he says, all of God's word is profitable for what? Doctrine. Because from here is where we are to get our conclusions about God because everything we know about God is found in this book right here. And in fact, there's nothing outside of this book that has come from God directly in our time that will tell us anything more or less about God. So when we come to this book, we come to conclusions and those conclusions are called doctrine. Now, when we come to conclusions and we're ready to make a statement, a dogma or dogma, which is more really plural, dogma are statements. That's the next one you hand out. Dogmas are statements that define an embraced theological conclusion. So when we're studying God's word and we start coming to some conclusions that's doctrine. But when we together decide that we're going to make a statement that defines that doctrine, then we are creating dogma. Dogma are the eight essentials that we're going to be dealing with over the following eight weeks. What are the, what are the statements of a, of a theological conclusion that we have embraced that's what we're going to be discussing. It's these dogma that the first century's church would run into questions because this one's saying this and that one's saying that. And we have a dogma, but now they're saying something different. What are we going to do? We're going to get together and we're going to talk about it. Well, what are we going to call this getting together? Well, I tell you what, let's call it a council. Well, what kind of council? Well, since we're the church, we'll call it a church council. Yeah, but we're from a, a bunch of different cities. What will we call it? Well, we'll call it an ecumenical church council because we're coming from a bunch of different places and we're going to get together. What are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about this statement of belief. And why is he saying something different than that? we got to figure out what's, and that's why we've got the church councils. When those church councils met and they worked through, what, what were they using? They were using God's word. And they were using the study of those that came before them. And they would come to conclusions. Most of the time, the conclusions were, uh-uh. What we've been standing on has been right. And they're wrong. They would create something that defined the conclusions that they came to in this council. And they were called creeds. And generally, the creeds were named after the city in which they met. That's why you have the Nicene Creed, because they all got together and met in Nicaea and determined that Arius is wrong, and we got to state it in such a way that they don't that no more and then we're going to call this thing a creed and we're going to put it out to the church to say this is truth that's been handed down by the apostles this is true don't you believe that because that is just plain wrong that makes sense well then 
denominations start popping up and, and, and one goes, well, I believe the creed, but now when it comes to baptism, now here's what I think baptism is, or here's what I think communion is supposed to look. Here's who ought to be baptized and when are they little? Are they big? Is it before salvation? Is it after salvation? And they would get together and they would decide what they think about the non-important things. And they would create confessions. Those confessions would say, yep, we, we believe the creed, but there's some things that we and y'all don't agree on about baptism. I think you're wrong about baptism. Was that in the creed? No, it's not in the creed anywhere, so we're okay to disagree. Yeah, but we want y'all to know what we believe. I won't know what you believe, so we come up with a confession about what we believe on non-important or non-essential issue. You see kind of how this is fleshing out? And now you can go to any bookstore in the world and you can buy volumes of the creeds and the confessions and the councils of the churches and you're looking at it and you're going, wait a minute, that's Catholic. No, ma'am. No, sir. That's the early church trying to figure it out with all this stuff that Jesus dumped on me. He goes, now, now go and teach and, and, and baptize and, and contend for the faith. Now, okay, well, all right, we got to talk about some of this. And they started trying to figure it out. What did the, what did the Old Testament say? Oh, 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 okay, we got it. And then you hear Paul going, this is, the God, this is what God told me. This is what is true. This is what Jesus said. This is it. And then folks come behind Paul and go, well, Paul said, because he wrote it down right there. And that's scripture. And we plug these things together. And we got to have some creeds. And we got to stop that heresy. And when he's confessions, you get it? That's doing theology. That's working through the process, creating dogma. There's three major approaches or kinds or methods of theology. Let's briefly go through these. First, biblical theology. What is biblical theology? Usually, biblical theology is what you get when I preach through a book for about 65% of my sermon because I'm trying to teach you what this author in this book has to say specifically. Biblical theology focuses on what an isolated book or an author teaches about God. It's when you get 65% of the sermon, when I teach through a book, it's trying to help you understand what this author is trying to say, what this particular work is trying to say. But you can't stop there. Because the whole Bible has to be tested and weighed against itself. And so we move into the second approach, and that is systematic theology. Systematic theology says, okay, I know what this author, what this book says, but how do I correlate what, what Matthew is recording here in his gospel that Jesus said? How do I correlate that back to what Isaiah said? Because those sound similar. That's systematic theology. It focuses on the orderly arrangement of what all the books of the Bible or authors teach together about God and how they relate to each other. That's what you get in 35% of the sermon that I preach. Okay, here's what this book says. Here's what this author is talking about. But we have to understand this through the lens of all of Scripture. So biblical, systematic. And then the third is historical theology. Historical theology is a little bit different because it focuses on understanding the development and differences in belief over the course of time. It's also referred to as the study of church history. You can even see this fleshed out in the Bible itself. We just, we just taught through the book of Galatians. But if you will go read Galatians, which is about that long, and you read behind it the book of Romans, which is about that long, you're going to discover that Paul was saying to the Galatians almost exactly the same things he was saying uh, to the Romans, but the progress, his understanding of those truths seems to have grown and developed so that he's presenting a more mature understanding 
And you go, why would he do this? Not because he wanted to write an abridged version and the large version. It's because he's communicating what the Spirit has taught him to the Galatians. And I think the Spirit is continuing to teach. Theology is still being done. He's still working through it. So by the time he gets to the Romans, he's like, y'all better put on your seatbelts because I just got started in that sermon series. I got so much more to tell you and can lay before you historical theology we've got to understand well what did the apostle apostles believe how has that belief developed through the spirits moving in the church where have things departed from orthodoxy where have things been added that were not biblical that should not have been added? that's historical theology makes sense let's move on there are 10 major categories. We're talking about doing theology. We'll just run through these. What are they? Well, the first is theology proper. This, this would be classes that you would take in Bible school, in seminary. You would take a, a theology proper class. It's all about the study of God. It's where you would study what it means that God is Trinity and how that works. And you'll never come to the understanding of how it works, but you'll be inundated with all of the systematic, biblical, and historical information that tie into the doctrine of God. Then there's bibliology. It's the study of how did we get our Bible? What books made it into the canon of Scripture? And what about those books that aren't? Why are some in? Why are some not? How are we to understand the genres? How are we to understand the authors? How are we to understand the Scripture working together in a document that was, that was uh, written by, I don't remember how many authors, but over about 1,500 years of folks that didn't know each other. How does that work? Bibliology is the study of the Bible. Christology, the study of Jesus Christ. Pneumatology is the study of the Holy Spirit. Angelology, self-explanatory, angels and demons. Anthropology, what does God's word say about man and how are we to understand human beings and how they relate to God? Soteri, I'm sorry, hermartiology. See, I wanted to skip over sin. We all do. Hermartiology is the study of sin. What does the Bible tell us about what messed us up and the problem that we all have that we can't address? It's the study of sin. Soteriology, the study of salvation. How was salvation provided? How was salvation received? What is the extent of salvation? Do I get to keep it or can I lose it? All of that is studied in soteriology ecclesiology is the study of the church who are they when did they originate how are they to govern themselves how are they to go about their life as the representatives of jesus christ in this time ecclesiology and then last eschatology it is the study of last things what is still to come what has god's word said about what is to come through those studies and through time here at Oasis Church, we've come up with eight essentials. When you leave today, you'll go out those doors or you probably go that way to go to, but if you will go out that door and around, then you'll get a card, a bookmark that'll have our eight essentials. The dogma, the hill on which we're going to stand and die. You can have one so that you can put it in your Bible that you're going to bring for the next eight weeks because we're not doing you version. So make sure you get that, but we have it printed here. What are the eight essentials? Number one, the Bible alone is authoritative. It is inspired and inerrant in the original documents. That's bibliology. What do we believe about the Bible? Second, God is Trinity. It's one God eternally existing in three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's the result of the study of theology proper. Number three, Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man. It is the study or part of the study of Christology. Who is Jesus and how are we to understand him? Number four, 
The human race is completely lost and dead spiritually. What state are we in at birth? And where will we stay if nothing happens to us by divine intervention? That is the study of anthropology. Number five, salvation is made possible by the substitutionary death and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Only one way of salvation. That's a study of soteriology, and it is also a study of Christology. Number six, salvation is received by human beings who are dead and lost spiritually by faith alone in Christ alone. That is the study of soteriology. Number seven, Number seven might not have had to be on a essentials list in the decades past. And that is a hill that I might get beat up really bad on, but I might not go all the way to death. But this is an important issue that at this time in history is under siege. And that is what is in store for us After our life is over, it is eternity with Christ for believers and eternal punishment and separation for non-believers. That is a part of eschatology and it is a part of ecclesiology that we will dig into that we are calling an an essential because those that would deny heaven and or hell would not be following the tenets of orthodoxy. And then number eight, In the future, Jesus Christ will return physically to this earth. It's a study of ecclesiology. It's a conclusion that if we're going to be brothers, if we're going to hug it out, we've all got to believe that Christ is going to come back. Well, wait a minute, Pastor Kevin. What about the tribulation? What about the rapture? What about all that stuff? You'll find that in our doctrinal statement. It's just not essential. It's what we believe. But there's room for disagreement. Where there's not is, is Christ returning? Nope, I don't believe it. Well, we're going to have to keep talking until we come to that agreement. There are other important issues of theology you may be wondering. Well, Pastor Kevin, what about the virgin birth? Virgin birth is very important. And you might consider that essential. We consider that very important but not a hill on which to die. And you know what? You may be sitting there going, you know what, Pastor Kevin, I disagree with that. That's okay. I'm okay because I believe it. And if you deny it, I'm going to have a problem. But there are all kinds. You may think that's essential. And I would say, add that to your list. Another important thing that you say, what about creation? What about the seven-day literal creation? You know what? Important. We have a statement on that. It's in our doctrinal statement. If you disagreed with that, you probably aren't going to be comfortable with us because we believe in seven-day literal creation. But it's non-essential. But it might be on your essential list, just not on ours. What about the nature of baptism or or communion? We've talked about that. You may think that's important enough to die on. We just don't. It's important enough to have a statement of doctrine, just not important enough to be dogma. But if it's on your list, that's cool. I'm just explaining to you where we land. And then there's one that's not an essential, but if you're going to partner with Oasis Church, because of the time in which we live, there's not an, it's not number nine. It's not an essential core Christian doctrine, but it is an essential to be a partner with us at Oasis Church. And that is our doctrinal paragraph, letter number H, if you've read it. I think H or O, I can't remember. And it has to do with human sexuality. How has God designed male and female and how has that been presented to us for marriage and the home and relationships? And and Oasis Church just simply believes 
that God created one man for one woman and male and female were created for marriage and no other. And, and that's to where the issues of intimacy are to be fleshed out. And if you disagree with that, we will love you. You can worship here. You can absolutely come here and find friends who will want to lead you into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. But if that's not your understanding of human sexuality, then we're not going to be able to partner with you because we see that as important, just not an essential church doctrine. Does that make sense too? So that's kind of where we are and that's what we're going to be talking about, just not that letter number H. We'll be talking about that at some other time. So why is theology important? Let's finish the handout and we'll be done. Can you smell the barbecue? I can't smell it yet. Why is theology so important? Dennis J. Mock worked for um, Charles Stanley, First Baptist in Atlanta, and he created an awesome, like, seminary in a box. I use that, that tour several volumes. I use that all the time because it's just like skeletons without a lot of fluff. And he made a statement about theology being important to the life of the believer. And here's what he said. It's important because correct belief about God will lead to proper response to God and appropriate behavior in life. What we believe is important because what we believe determines whether we are in the family of God or out of the family of God. And, and theology is important for us in the family of God because correctly believing the things that have been faithfully passed down through the prophets, through the apostles, by Christ himself, those things correctly believed will lead to a proper response, which will lead to a proper behavior. So when we are living contrary to the will and the purpose of God, it is arguable that our biggest problem is our theology. Because what we believe, what we really believe will determine what we do. I really believe in gravity. I've never been tempted to open the door hatch on an airplane and test it. Because I really believe in gravity. I really don't want to plummet that far without a parachute. But there are things I say I believe that I prove I don't really believe because of my actions. So theology is important. Theology first will make you a more effective servant. Second Timothy chapter number two, verse number 15 says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word, a servant who can take God's word and share it as a servant. Do it as an obedient follower because of what we believe. It makes us a more effective servant. Second, it equips us to be qualified teachers. Yours might say a better, but I changed my mind after I saw that. Not a better teacher, a qualified teacher. We know that Matthew 28, 19, and 20 is a, oh, it's a verses we say all the time around here, but Jesus said, I want you to go and make disciples I want you to baptize them. And then I want you to teach them the things that were passed down faithfully, the faith, the, the things that are to be believed. I want you to teach them to observe all those things and I'll be with you. When we do theology and we do it well, we become equipped to be a, a qualified teacher. And then lastly, theology is important because it enables us to be a truth defender. You know what? That hill, we all got to stand on that hill. You can't expect me to stand on that hill for you. You got to stand on those hills for yourself. That's why we're going to spend the time. So you'll be equipped to take your position, drive your standard and say, bring it on because I ain't going nowhere. It enables us to be a truth defender. Paul was writing to Titus in Titus chapter one, verse nine. He was talking about the qualifications of an elder and an elder needs to be someone who will hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he, 
in the context of an elder and that he and she in the context of the whole body may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine so that we can, when we say, no, 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 ma'am, that's not what that means. What God's word means right there is this, that's sound doctrine, that's good teaching because good theology has been done and understood and we're still working through it and we're doing it together. That's why we're gonna do what we're gonna do for the next eight weeks. God has told us to get ready, so we had better be obedient. Having heard God's word today, I hope that you see yourself as one who needs to be prepared for the fight that is coming, for the faith as it applies to you, and that you will be in your place so that you can learn and be equipped to take that stand and that you'll make that decision today. If you don't know anything about what I've just talked about and you're wondering what in the world, well, you might not know Jesus. And can I tell you something today? He loves you. He knows that you're the center that you pillow your head at night and you know who you are. You know how you feel and you know how unfixable you think you are. Well, Jesus died so that he might not only fix you, but make you new, place you into his family and use you for his glory. And that can only happen by right belief. And that is that his death and his resurrection is the only answer to your brokenness. And if you're ready to embrace him today, well, you can take the biggest theological step of your entire being, and that is to embrace Christ crucified and risen in your place and for your sin with a destiny that you can't even begin to fathom that starts today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your love. God, we ask that you will use this time over the next few weeks as we just talk about the the stakes, the standards that through the course of history have come to be defined as essential core Christian beliefs. Those things that we should be willing and ready to die on. I pray that you will help us not to treat this as, well, we'll pick that up online, but to be here and to, to, to lock arms together so that, so that out of our worshiping together and singing these songs about what we believe, we can come together around your word and together place our stake on that hill, trusting that you're with us, even if it costs us our life. And I pray that you will give us resolve to pursue that together. God, I pray for that one who may be here that's, uh, that's not yet a believer. I pray that you will just highlight your son that died in their place for their sin, paid for it in full, took it into death, and then, God, you raised him from death, victorious over their sin, providing for their future bringing them into their family if they will just receive it by faith. And I pray you'll draw their heart. And before they leave from here today, that they might desire to ask how, or if they're just, if they know right now that they'll just say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I need Jesus and I just want to receive him today. God, we want to thank you in advance for the food that we're going to enjoy together. We thank you for the hands that prepared it. We thank you for all of those that have participated and providing. I thank you for this body, for the privilege it is to be here with them. I just thank you for the grace that you have shown us over a decade. And we just have the confident belief that those grace windows are not going to close, but you're going to continue to pour out your grace, your courage, um, God, your strength out on us in the days to come while we wait on the return of your son. It's in his name. All the voices church said.